Well, good morning uh, again. Um, my name is Chris, and it feels uh, great to be back. Um, I was out, as you know, for eight weeks on sabbatical from early June until the end of July, and it was such a gift for my family to be able to spend those eight weeks together. Uh, we didn't do any big extravagant traveling or anything like that, but when I lived in Illinois for seminary, uh, I would always refer to Wisconsin as the promised land. And so uh, we took advantage of the promised land that is Wisconsin and did some very Wisconsin things, spent some time riding bikes and being outside and a few local trips. So thank you so much uh, for the gift that you gave uh, to us as a family uh, for those eight weeks off this summer. Uh, it's so appreciated. Uh, so thank you. Well, uh, as you might expect, we are continuing on in our series in Revelation this morning, and we'll be picking up with the first half of Revelation chapter 14. I'll be preaching from the Christian Standard Bible or the CSB, uh, if you want to follow along in that, but whatever translation you prefer or have with you or open up uh, will be just fine. Before we dive into our text for this morning, I want to back up just a minute and remember together what happened in chapter 13. If you weren't here for Dan's message last week, I would encourage you to go on the website later today or sometime this week or open up the podcast on your commute to work and listen to his message about Revelation chapter 13. It's well worth your time and it'll help inform uh, your understanding of the text today. And uh, if you missed it, he talked about the mark of the beast, which is always a hot topic. So uh, you can check that out if you want to get all of those questions answered. But for now, uh, since you're not listening to it, or maybe you missed it, or we're just recapping, last week, Pastor Dan covered chapter 13 and this unholy counterfeit trinity, right, of the dragon or serpent who is uh, Satan, and then the sea beast and the land beast, right? It's Satan's feeble attempt at mimicking the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in an effort to deceive people into worshiping him or really worshiping anything other than the one true God. And throughout chapter 13, things really don't look great, right? Dan uh, shared uh, very helpfully a hopeful message last week that Jesus will hold us fast, right? And, and he's made a promise to do that. And, and the worst thing that Satan can do to believers is kill them and send them to eternity and glory with Jesus a little early, right? All of that is true. And that's the hope that we cling to as believers when things get hard, that God will come through. But make no mistake, chapter 13 paints a bleak picture of just how hard things will get. For those who take the mark of the beast, that is for those who align themselves with Satan and these beasts publicly, they're declaring their allegiance to him and their rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord. For them, life will seem great. Right? They'll be able to participate in commerce and hold jobs and have social lives and just kind of generally exist without a constant fear of death. But for Christians, none of that will be the case. Right? Food will be hard to come by. We'll have to operate in secret. Believers will be publicly executed. They'll starve. And yeah, it is true that we have the hope that when we die as believers, we're reunited with Jesus. But I think if we're honest, the picture of Romans 13, or of Revelation 13, is a tough pill to swallow, right? It's a picture of the, the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering. And Revelation 13 towers over the worst kind of persecution we experience in the world today. 
But thankfully, the book of Revelation doesn't stop with chapter 13. It keeps going. So hear the word of the Lord as we read Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 to 13. It says this, Then I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, but no one could learn the song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And another, a second angel followed saying, it has fallen, Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And another, a third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast or its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. Well, first we have Jesus and the 144,000. The scene has been set, right? And it looks like from the outside that the unholy trinity of the dragon and the two beasts are winning. They've taken over the world market and they're performing these signs and wonders and people are following them. Chapter 13 then concludes with this number of the beast, right? The mark that people are taking and the number is 666, a number that will never quite be 777, the number of perfection. And then our chapter this morning opens with a dramatic shift in scene, right? Over here on the left, we have John who sees all of this terrible things, all of these terrible things happening. The, the wicked are prospering. But then he turns his head and he looks up at Mount Zion, and he sees Jesus, the true king. And with him are 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I think that this 144,000 is the same crowd that we saw in chapter 7. In chapter 7, John wrote this. He said that he saw this 144,000 and a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. 
The group here gathered with Jesus on Mount Zion are very likely a gathering of all believers who have ever gone on to glory throughout history. Just like seven is the number of perfection that we see over and over in Revelation, so 144,000 is a number representative of completeness. It's the completed number of God's people. And so I think on this mountain are the complete people of God, or at least those who had died already. Can you imagine the scene with me for a second that John is talking about here? Close your eyes and picture it. Gathered there on this mountaintop with Jesus is a crowd bigger than you've ever seen. Millions and millions and millions of people. All the believers who have ever passed on. And there's a sound, John says, like cascading of waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. Like harpists playing their harps, singing a new song before the throne. Waterfalls and thunder and harps and singing all with the purpose of giving glory to King Jesus. It's also no coincidence that Jesus shows up here on Mount Zion. You may remember that throughout Scripture, Mount Zion is used to refer to the location of God's holy city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where Solomon built God's temple and where God dwelt in the midst of his people in the Old Testament. It's not insignificant then that Jesus has shown up on Zion. In fact, in Psalm 2, the Father declares this. He says, I, the Father, have installed my King, that is Jesus, on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. The world around in Revelation 14 may think that this unholy trinity has won some sort of victory. All right, but nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus has been installed as king. And the nations are his inheritance. The ends of the earth are his possession. And he will break his enemies with an iron scepter and shatter them like pottery. Jesus will be victorious. Notice what marks these people in these verses who are gathered with Jesus. First, they have a literal mark on their foreheads, right? The name of the Father and of the Son has been written on their foreheads. Jesus has claimed these people as his own. While it might seem like those with the mark of the beast have a better mark, one that gives them access to global commerce and the ability to freely move around the world, it may seem better, but it's not. Those with the name of the Father and the Son on their foreheads, yeah, they may be taken captive, they may be killed, or they may live out the rest of their days in pain. But in the end, they'll gather with Jesus on Mount Zion. They'll sing a new song of the redeemed, a song sung by those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, and they will rest from their struggles. Meanwhile, as we'll see in a little bit, those with the mark of the beast will suffer for all eternity. 
So this group here gathered with Jesus has a literal mark, right? A better mark, the name of the Son and the Father on their foreheads. But what else marks God's people according to these verses? Well, verse 4, it says, They have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. Well, John is not describing God's people as only 144,000 literal virgins. Sexual sin, first off, is not unforgivable. God is in the business of healing that. And sex within the confines of marriage is celebrated, not condemned throughout Scripture. What John is saying here is that the people of God have not defiled themselves in false worship. They haven't intermarried, so to speak, with worldly idols. They haven't committed adultery by worshiping things other than Jesus. They've maintained a pure gospel. Practically speaking, it means that they've placed their trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. To do anything else is to commit spiritual adultery and to, and to believe a false gospel. Trusting in Jesus and anything else, right? Jesus and good works or Jesus and being better than my neighbor or Jesus and whatever. Trusting in any of those things is not trusting in Jesus at all. We must confess that it is not on our own merit but wholly on the work of Jesus on the cross that we can be saved. God's people are marked by their pure confession of Jesus as their Savior. They're also marked by their following of the Lamb wherever he goes in the second half of verse 4. We've seen some terrible things happen to God's people even in these last few chapters. Starved, hunted, persecuted, murdered. God's people are marked by their willingness to follow Jesus wherever he goes. No matter how difficult things get, even if it means obedience to the point of death. Finally, God's people are marked by their faithfulness in telling the truth about Jesus, even under pressure from Satan and his beasts. Verse 5, it says, No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. No doubt people at this time will feel immense pressure to deny Jesus as Lord. Right? You can empathize with them a little bit. Satan and his beasts are controlling everything. It, we would feel very tempted to say, yeah, Jesus, he's really not my sin. It's okay. Like, I just, I want to participate. I need to provide for my family. I need to have some comfort in my life. I'm going to starve to death. I'll just take the mark and, and be able to participate in global commerce. I'll just deny that Jesus is my savior. I can keep that to myself. Well, God's people are marked by their bold proclamation of the gospel and their, willing, their willingness to cling to the truth even in the, in the face of intense persecution and death. God's people on Zion are marked by at least those four things, right? A name on their foreheads, a pure confession of the true gospel, a willingness to follow Jesus wherever he goes, and truthfulness rather than compromise. In short, God's people are marked by holding fast to the promise of salvation from Jesus and Jesus alone. That name, it says that it's written on the foreheads of God's people, right? The word written there carries a sense in Greek of something that has been done 
to these people. They didn't like grab a sharpie or something and write the name of the Son and the Father on their foreheads. God called them to himself and said, mine, and put his name on them. See, even when we struggle to hold fast to the promise of Jesus, God is faithful to his promise to us. Romans 8 tells us that nothing, not even our own hard-headed or hard-hearted selves, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We're called to remain faithful to Jesus even to the bitter end of our lives. And in turn, Jesus promises to be faithful to us in spite of our sin. What a promise that is, right? That God is faithful to us even when we're disobedient to him. If we confess Jesus, if we heed God's call, then in the end we will gather with a vast multitude of believers from every nation, tribe, people, and language, singing praises and walking with Jesus in paradise for eternity. Well, after John describes this triumphant gathering of God's people with King Jesus, we see the message of the three Angels. Let's work back through these last seven verses, starting with verse 6 and 7. It says this, Then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water, of water. Jesus is gathered with the saints on Mount Zion, right? And this angel flies high overhead with a message, the message of the eternal gospel. And he's proclaiming it to the whole earth, every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come. In other words, judgment is here, people. Judgment is here. Fear God and give him glory glory. Scholars are divided a little bit on uh, what exactly is happening in this angel's proclamation. One school of thought says that this is the end. The angel has come and that marks the end of the opportunity to repent. And the angel is commanding all people everywhere to fear God and give him glory, to worship the creator God. Whether you're a believer or not, God is Lord over all and you now will worship him, whether you want to or not. Certainly, that's possible, right? In the end, it is true that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as king and God as sovereign ruler over all. Believer or unbeliever, faithful servant or blasphemously disobedient, on the day of judgment, there will be no choice but to acknowledge the kingship of Jesus. What was once maybe hazy or felt unclear to people, like is Jesus really king or is there really a God or any of that will all be made abundantly obvious. God deserves all fear and glory. So it is possible that the angel is coming to announce this hour of judgment and command all people, both repentant and unrepentant, to worship the one true God and finally recognize his lordship. I think, though, that there's a more likely option. See, throughout Scripture, we see over and over and over again that God is a merciful Father who, by the blood of his Son, Jesus, wants to reconcile all people 
to himself. It's not his desire that any single person should suffer, but that all would confess Jesus as Lord and be saved. And so I think what's going on here is even at the very end of this earth, people are getting one final chance to repent. It's a final plea. The angel says, look, look, all of you who are undecided, all of you who are on the fence about this Jesus guy, all of you who haven't confessed him as Lord, do it. Fear God and give him glory. Look at all that he's done. He's made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. He's Lord over all and creator of all. Worship him. Worship him. Confess Jesus. Trust in him for salvation. Turn away from this temptation to follow Satan and these beasts and confess the true king. See, even at the very end, Jesus extends the invitation that he did in the book of Matthew, where he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Does this mean that if you're currently living in sin and rejecting Jesus' lordship, that you should do that as long as possible and wait until the very end to confess Jesus as Lord? Right? We've all heard these stories of people who say, yeah, yeah, I know God's real and I know I need to follow Jesus, but I'll do that on my deathbed so I can kind of live it up right now. Should you do that? Of course not. Of course not. That makes a mockery of the gospel and it spits in Jesus' face. Not only that, but you don't know when you're going to have another chance. Any one of us could leave here today and be gone before we make it home. It doesn't mean that we should continue to live in sin, but it does mean that God is gracious and kind and he wants a relationship with you. So repent and believe and fear him and give him glory. Then another angel comes in verse 8. It says this, And another, a second angel, followed, saying, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. Well, Babylon, during John's day, was a hub of immorality and idolatry. The name of the city literally translated to the gate of the gods. The cultural influence of Babylon was felt for hundreds of years, from uh, late B.C. all the way into the early A.D.s. And the influence that they had wasn't what we would call a gospel influence. The angel here declares that Babylon the Great, that city who brought so many into idolatry and adultery against the Lord, has fallen. For first century readers, it, was probably, it probably seemed impossible. Right? This, this powerful city of Babylon with all its glory and influence couldn't really fall. It would never fade. Well, we can feel like this at times today, Right? Sometimes we feel like the influence, not of the city of Babylon, of course, but of Satan himself will never dissipate. We look at the way that the world is going and we shudder to think what it's going to be like in 15 years. In the United States, we're as divided and polarized as we've ever been. And any basis for conversation around objective truth, especially the objective truth of Scripture, is quickly fading. 
Around the world, evil things happen. Christians are openly persecuted and discriminated against, right? Genocides happen all over the globe that we're not even aware of. Russia continues to attack, uh, to attack Ukraine, even though that's quickly faded from the forefront of our news sources. Wickedness abounds all over the globe, much to the joy of Satan. And we wonder if it will ever end. Friends, it will. It will end. Babylon the Great, that symbol of rebellious mankind and the influence of Satan, it will fall. In the end, God will reign victorious. That's our hope as Christians, that one day all wrongs will be made right. That justice will fully be served. That God will conquer his enemies. And that we, as his children, having been washed by the blood of Jesus, will be with him in glory forever. Finally, the third angel comes bearing a message of the suffering of the rebellious. Let's look at verses 9 to 11. It says this, And another, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This is a terrifying text if you're apart from Jesus. It's a terrifying text if you're apart from Jesus. Look at what the angel says. He says, The one who worships the beast, that is, the one who rejects Jesus as Lord, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. It's quite the word picture, isn't it? You have God's cup of anger and his wrath is poured full strength into that cup, not watered down at all. The ones who worship the beast, again, the ones who reject Jesus as Lord, they will experience suffering unlike anything we can even begin to imagine. It says, he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest for them. Revelation is full of contrasting images, right? And here's another one. Remember in chapter 8 when we saw the prayers of the saints go up like the smoke of incense before God and it was pleasing to him? Well, here we see the prayers of the saints contrasted with the torment of those who followed the beast. Their torment rises like smoke. It will be unbearable for all of eternity. Those who followed the beast at the moment of judgment will, feel, will realize and experience the full weight of their mistake. There will be no more opportunity for repentance, no more second chances to get right with God. When that moment of judgment comes, they will confess his lordship and they'll know there was a path to salvation, but there will be nothing to do with that knowledge besides weep. I think we often fear the physical torment of this idea of hell that we have, and it's here, right? There's burning and suffering and pain, and that physical pain scares us. But the pain of the knowledge of Jesus' salvation with no more opportunity to confess him will be much, much worse. You might be sitting there thinking, 
wow, how can a loving God do something like this? How can he allow people to suffer forever like that? How can he punish someone for all of eternity? Those are questions that could be uh, months-long sermon series, and they probably deserve that treatment. But here are three quick answers for this morning. First, how can God do something like this? Well, God is an infinitely holy God, and any rejection of him is the highest form of treason. Our view of God's holiness is because of sin, understandably, so, so limited. When we see God face to face, there will be no doubt in our minds as to how much we deserved judgment for, sitting, for sinning against our maker. Second, love without justice is not love at all. It's not loving to allow wickedness to go unpunished. All of our sins deserve punishment, both believers and unbelievers alike. All of our sin deserves punishment. And God is a God of justice. He's not a God of overlooking sins and sweeping them under the rug like they don't matter. Apart from eternal justice, there is no eternal love. And that leads us to our third answer. How can a loving God do something like this? Because God gives every opportunity for repentance and salvation. He gives every opportunity for repentance and salvation. Sin cannot go unpunished. And so, in his love, God punished his own son, the spotless lamb. Jesus took our punishment as believers. God didn't sweep it under the rug. He didn't overlook it. Instead, he poured out his wrath, which was poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He poured that out on his own son so that we could be saved. And he gives every opportunity to come to him. Sometimes people think, well, God didn't give me an opportunity or he's not inviting me or he's not calling me. Well, if you're here this morning or you're online hearing these words, God is calling you to himself. Repent and believe. He calls and he calls and he calls and he calls and he says, follow me and be forgiven. Follow me and experience life. Follow me and experience rest. Fear God and give him glory and you will be free. So what's the bottom line here? Well, things are going to get really difficult. All right, for many believers around the world, they already are. But if they're not difficult now, John tells us that they will be. Our text wraps up in verses 12 and 13 with an encouragement. It says this, This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labors, since their works follow them. After describing Jesus and the gathered believers and the gospel and the consequences for rejecting it, John finishes his section with a concluding encouragement to believers. Keep God's commands and your faith in Jesus. See, persecution requires endurance. As we heard last week, that ability to endure is given to us by God himself. God helps us endure. All right, but what does it look like to endure? Well, according to verse 12, it looks like keeping his commands and keeping our faith in Jesus. And so as the Spirit works in us, encouraging us and empowering us and equipping us, we work with him 
we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We practice spiritual disciplines, the reading of scripture and prayer and physically gathering with God's people. And in those things, we strive for obedience and we strive to cling to our faith in Jesus. Persecution will come. And as it does, we're called as believers to endure in obedience and faith. And if we do that, even to the point of death, we're reminded again in verse 13 that we are called blessed. For the worst thing that can happen if our lives are taken is we're granted rest from our trials a little early. The worst Satan can do is give us rest from the trials of this life a little early. So what do we do with all of this? Well, two takeaways. First, fear God and give him glory. Fear God and give him glory. Believer and unbeliever, fear God and give him glory. He is king over all. If you're not following Jesus with your life, don't wait. Surrender your life to him today by confessing his son Jesus as Lord. Don't honor and fear the patterns of this world and chase after the, after the desires of your own heart. Instead, confess the one true king as Lord. Seek rest in Jesus Christ. Second, endure. Endure. Keep God's commands and your faith in Jesus. As the Spirit walks with you and encourages you and empowers you, walk with him. Day by day, when it's easy and when it's not, choose obedience. Choose obedience. Choose to boldly proclaim the eternal gospel in your own heart and to those who God places in your life. One day, Jesus will gather all the saints on Mount Zion in victory over Satan's worthless attempts to thwart him. Some will choose to follow the way of the world and the mark of the beast. Others will fear God, give him glory, and endure in their faith in Jesus. Let's be a people who fears God and endures. Let's pray.